Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am really grateful to have this forum to talk to some cool people and talk about hard topics, but do it in a cool way where people come together and agree to disagree sometimes. And sometimes we get into scraps, but we're trying to do it in a different way, in goodwill and in good faith. Please remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have and you're digging what we do, please tell a friend, give us a good rating and leave a review. Easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. Or feel free to connect with me on all the social media apps at Corey S. Nathan. That's at C-O-R-E-Y, S as in Sam, Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. We'd love to connect and hear what you think of what we're doing here at Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. With, like I said, some of the coolest people in the country, like Lene Erickson. Lene Erickson is Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at Third Way, where she tackles hot button issues like immigration, abortion, religious liberty, education, and guns. Previously, Lene served as a member of President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. She was also legislative counsel at Alliance for Justice and before that at the Legal Rights Center and the Center for Victims of Torture. Lene's commentary has been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, Politico, and PBS NewsHour, among other outlets. And she's also appeared on NPR, Fox News, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, CNN, Bloomberg Television, and is a regular contributor to one of our favorite podcasts, Politicology, with all our pals over there. And if you didn't think Lene was busy enough, she's also the principal second violinist in D.C.'s capital city, Symphony. So, all right. So first, tell me about that. How do you fit that being, you know, major league violinist into everything else you're doing? You know, it is actually um, kind of my reprieve time because I find that um, especially when you're um, privileged enough to do a job that you really love and you care about and work on things that you're thinking about all day long and and have a passion for, sometimes it's hard to turn your brain off. And so I find that when I am, you know, watching Netflix or just hanging out, I'm also still thinking about work. Um, but when I'm sight reading Schubert, I can't be thinking about work. Right. <laughs> it, uh, it really takes up all my brain space. So then after a three hour orchestra rehearsal on a Thursday night, I feel more rested than if I had just, you know, sat on the couch and, and watched the crowd. So yeah, it's actually been a, a fantastic outlet for me and an opportunity to meet people that aren't always um, doing exactly what I'm doing, which is often uh, the people that you surround yourself with in DC. It almost sounds like you, your time with music, whether it's with the orchestra, or I imagine you would do some practice on your own, uh, is a similar space as a lot of folks have discovered meditation, for example. Yes. Yeah. I'm also a big yoga meditation person, but um, the impact on my brain is very similar. I think it's like just having um, your brain fully taken up by something that's not your day to day really helps when you have to get back into the day to day to feel like you can keep going. I discovered meditation last year after three people who I love and love me that I trust um, independently all said like, they were just kind of prompting you do have you like checked out meditation and i don't know at first i thought my squirrel brain wouldn't allow for it (laughs) you know yeah but having started just with like literally three minute guided meditations it is the biggest game changer of uh, certainly the last year but arguably over the last decade or more um just like my mental equilibrium, uh, homeostasis, that's the right word. My mental homeostasis is different and had the effect that um, I was diagnosed with um, bi- bipolar about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried various pharmaceutical regimens that 
I only experienced the unwanted side effects and none yeah. of what they were describing would happen. Uh, but doing meditation, I look back at my um, notes from back then from, from uh, 15 or so years ago. And that's what meditation did. Like my whole, my brain chemistry, I think is changing like quite literally. So, yeah. And I think it's, um, people often feel like they have to be like really good at it and, you know, um, be able to sit for an hour and not have a thought cross their brain. But, um, one of my colleagues, Luke Watson, who does a lot of the professional development and leadership development at third way where I work is very focused on just making sure you can do what you can do. And then not feeling like a failure. If some thought comes into your mind, just right. like watch it pass and then try to and try not to hold on to it. Just try to like let it let it flow through you, and then get back to it. And um, that's really helped me to not feel like I'm failing at meditation because I'm a very Type A person who wants to be good at things. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard if you feel like you're supposed to be perfect at it to to get any better. That was a big uh, that that was part of what opened the gates for me is learning the um, a couple of the guided meditations I do. They call it noting. Uh, mm -hmm. So noting right. my thoughts yeah. and almost like it, it was a, an epiphany of sorts because I realized, oh, that thought isn't me. It doesn't mm -hmm. capture me or hold me. It's a yeah. separate thing and I can gently let it pass and That's right. uh, focus back on my breathing. So that was a big one. Now, how does being a musician shape or influence your work in politics or do you specifically keep those two disciplines completely separate? You know, I think that they certainly influence each other in my level of creativity. I think one of the things that we really focus um, focus on at Third Way and, and have done really well over the two decades that the organization has been around almost um, is, is trying to kind of take risks and be creative. And there are so many myriad problems in our current po political system, in our current, in our country, and the, the same solutions or approaches that we've been using for the past however many decades haven't fixed them. So we need to try some other stuff. So I think the improvisational quality and, and creative quality of, of playing music um, definitely helps me to be a little bit more improvisational in my work and say, okay, well, that didn't really work out. Let's go try this other thing. Or what if we thought about it a completely different way? Um, and then it also just um, has it really helps me learn how to work as a team without always having to speak everything. You know, like um, one of my favorite things to do is play chamber music and um, you have to breathe together and you're not going to say, okay, we're going to start now. You don't even start by saying one, two, three, four, start. You just breathe. And I think that um, that kind of teamwork quality and integrating with other people and how they're working is is also a big component of my work. Wow. That so do you stay chamber music, classical? You mentioned Schubert. Do you ever branch out and play in other genres, jazz or fiddle or what have you? Or Yeah, um, usually I do it now for um, the instrument petting zoo that we have. We have a family concert where everybody can bring kids and they can play with our instruments. And uh, kids always think that fiddle is much cooler than violin. So I play a little fiddle music for them then. Um, I, I had done jazz in the past, but haven't for a while. And, uh, you know, aforementioned type A person, I gravitate more to the kind of those standard, um, you know, classical pieces, the the Schubert's, the um, Mozart's, the Beethoven's. And I love the like really, really big, loud symphonies because it's just kind of all encompassing. Yeah. One of my favorite characters uh, in TV over the last 15, 20 years is uh, from the show Treme. Uh, it was an HBO show that um, the, it takes place after the flood in New Orleans. And this mm -hmm. one character is a classically trained violinist who first hooks up with some street musicians in um, in New Orleans and then slowly but surely um, uses, uh, you know, violin in any number of different outlets, whether it's, you know, Prez Hall type stuff mm -hmm. or, you know, the more classical settings. Uh, really fascinating character and her evolution was uh, one of my favorites. So. I'm thinking of of Little Lene. So Little Lene started playing violin in first grade. But something else I read about when you were a kid is that in the fifth grade, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, right? You voted for Ross Perot in your class's mock election. That really was, that captured my attention because 
it's pretty young to be thinking independently in that way. So I was curious how you were arriving at, was your family the type that sat around the dinner table and had these conversations about politics or how did you arrive at such an independent conclusion like that? Yeah, certainly not. Um, I grew up in rural Northern Minnesota and both of my parents um, have, you know, non-political jobs, don't really um, want to, you know, they, they vote and they're, they're fantastic citizens and they're very engaged in, in their community and, and in their church. Um, but they are not, you know, people who like to talk about politics, that's for sure. <laughs> so, um, in fact, I don't think that they even, as they would take me to go when they were voting, they wouldn't even tell me who they were voting for. Um, oh, that's you know, interesting. It was, it's a very Minnesotan, you know, this is, this is my private decision kind of a thing, you know, but I, I went to Catholic school and I was in, Kind of a, a fairly conservative, you know, rural community, and so I certainly had some of those, you know, viewpoints and, and values that were instilled in me very early about hard work and about taking responsibility for your own actions. Um, and I could also see that there were a lot of things that were kind of messed up in the world that maybe wasn't just about you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. So I think I liked the idea of kind of mixing um, the values that that drive both. Um, the left and the right of politics, the, the, the good parts of the values, there are certainly bad parts too. Um, and, and, you know, kind of bringing that together in a, in a way that was less inside the box. Um, and, you know, whether Ross Perot was really that person or not, I was like 10, so I don't know. But the idea that, you know, I don't have to choose between a lesser of two evils, I can kind of make up my own path was very appealing to me. Right, right. Now, I've heard you describe your family as very a uh, politically mixed family. Yeah. Um, but you you didn't talk about like you didn't talk about politics. How did you how did you know that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I I know it now um, because what I do necessitates talking about politics like all the time, or at least encourages it. So there is no way I can go to a Erickson family reunion and not get asked about, you know, every manner of thing about what's happening in DC at this point. So whether or not that's what I really want to be talking about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, um, my, I, I describe my mom politically as a person who was very independent, um, you know, union member, but Catholic and, you know, ha has a lot of her own ideas and, and just didn't want to be kind of put in a box. Um, and so she's kind of your classic swing voter, in, in the Midwest. And um, so she's always my touchstone for like, what do swing voters think? Like, cause she, you know, voted for George W. Bush and Barack Obama, you know, and, uh, but hates Trump for a million reasons. Um, and my dad is a Republican and um, he's a deacon at our Catholic church and uh, holds, uh, you know, a lot of conservative views on, you know, issues that align with that perspective um, and also hates Donald Trump because he thinks he's a horrible human. And, and so my dad, uh, who usually doesn't get involved in things like this, helps to caucus and organize their whole caucus for Marco Rubio in the primary um, the, the first time around with Trump. So, um, you know, they they have um, their own kind of perspectives on things and are really those kind of people who look at a candidate and say, like, is this person a good human? Does their values align with mine? Um, you know, maybe I'm not going to agree with them on everything, but I don't agree with the other person on everything either. So how can I find kind of the, the person that could best represent me? Yeah. It seems like a lot of the conversations I've heard you in are with folks that are coming from within a silo of sorts, mm -hmm. you know, uh, especially when you're talking with someone in, on the Democratic side, which you identify with. It seems that your uh, your family, your, your, your background lends itself to thinking about people that you love that think differently than that democratic or progressive silo. And again, you identify that way. I think you call yourself a pragmatic progressive. That's right. But I, I wonder, I wonder if that's um if that is how unique that is. Or are there more people who here can have those conversations with family members who maybe even voted for Trump? Or is it as much of a bubble um, that that people stay within on each side and you're really more of the unicorn? Well, I think I'm more of a unicorn in Washington, D.C. than elsewhere. <laughs> I think um, in the country, there, you know, the bulk of people can have a conversation about, you know, a lot of different things that they might disagree about and, and do so in a way that 
um, doesn't come to blows. Um, in Washington, that's less true. <laughs> so I often describe my work as um, saying, you know, especially on these kind of social issues that we work on, whether it's immigration or guns or LGBT or abortion, that most people in Washington are paid to make those issues seem black and white. That's their job is to say either you're evil or you're on the good side, like be on the right side of history or not. And the truth is that all of those issues are much more gray. And that's what most people in the country think is that, you know, we do need to wrestle with some of these things and, and it's not completely black and white. And so, you know, one of my favorite um, pollsters, Robbie Jones at Public Religion Research, asked this great question in a survey where he asked separately, he, instead of saying, are you pro-life or pro-choice? He asked two separate questions. He said, do you identify as pro-life? And then in a Another question later said, do you identify as pro-choice? And there was a huge chunk of Americans that said yes to both of those. Oh, that's interesting. And if you ask it as an either or, you're never going to figure that out, right? Like right. when you look at it, you're going to see, you know, 50.1% on this side and 49.9% on this side if you only present it as um, you have to pick one or the other. But actually, there's a lot of folks who, um, you know, believe that, um, seven in 10 in a recent poll we did believe that abortion is the taking of a human life. But they also believe that uh, it should be um, something that is a decision between a woman, her family and her doctor. Um, and there's about 40% of the country that says yes to both of those things. Yeah. And so much of our political conversation acts as if those people don't exist, acts as if you have to only believe one of those statements is true. So trying to help people understand the complications of that narrative is like not necessarily a popular thing to do in DC, <laughs> but I think it's really needed. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your education, you, you were trained as a lawyer and, and have experience professionally as a lawyer, but a lot of the conversations I hear you participate in, you're answering folks that have really strong opinions about something with data. I was wondering where you learned the art of getting these insights because even, even certain um, I don't want to even call them polls, but it's like, they're, they're more, uh, they, they, they include a lot of data, but it's also narrative. It's, it's explanatory on a deeper level. Where did you learn that, that craft, if you will? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in law school, I learned how to kind of put together a persuasive argument in general. I think it made me better at writing and, and oral argument for sure. Um, but obviously wasn't on, on these topic areas. It was on very boring, mostly very boring topic areas, around, uh, things that I didn't really want to spend my whole life thinking about. But uh, when I came to Third Way in 2008, uh, we had a, a big poll in the field in California the day after the Proposition 8 vote happened, which was the vote that um, uh, took back marriage equality. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and we were the only ones with those numbers. So I had to figure out how to read a poll, read a crosstab, figure out what that even meant, <laughs> um, and kind of make sense of this complicated thing where a state that we see generally is very blue had actually repealed marriage equality in the state when it was put to the voters. And um, in places like San Francisco, only six in 10 people voted to uphold marriage equality. There was about 40% that didn't. Um, that's not your stereotype of San Francisco, right? So um, we had to try to figure out like what's going on under here. And, you know, I it, so often think that most political pollsters or advocacy groups that are using public opinion research in politics um, use it to try to prove their own point. They use it to try to prove that they're right. Um, you know, I can I can write 18 more polls that tell you that, you know, 95% of people support universal background checks. Great. But that's not actually like moving us forward. Because <laughs> Those people aren't all in Congress, unfortunately. But, you know, what we try to do is understand what the tensions are underneath something. So why is it that the fact that we have 95% support for universal background checks doesn't translate into policy change? And the answer is because most people don't think it will actually impact crime rates. And most people don't think that it is um, something that would impact their community. So when you have like 
you know, surface level agreement to this question, but people don't think it's that important or that impactful, um, you're not going to have the the policy change that you need. Um, and asking those questions is very unpopular because the, a lot of the gun safety groups would rather not ask those questions. They'd rather yes. just have the 95%. Um, but I think in order to build kind of sustainable change over time, you have to understand what's really going on with people so that you can persuade them, so that you can address the concerns that they have. And how are you going to do that if you don't know what's holding them back? It seems like your subtext often uh, when in these conversations is, do you want to be right or do you want to win? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was actually curious about another um, situation, uh, another experience you had on President. You, you've mentioned your family's involvement with the Catholic Church and your time on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Are you are you uh, still a, a religious person or? I, I'm not um, active in any organized religion. Um, I have my own spirituality, but uh, I am also a, a gay woman who grew up in a time when the Catholic Church wasn't really about that. So I uh, um, have, have not participated in any formal way. Um, in fact, I used to, up until tw 2012, um, my dad and I would do the Christmas services. We were the the singers at the Christmas services, the two of us. Um, and that year was the year that Minnesota had a ballot initiative on marriage. And the Minnesota Catholic Church was the number one contributor to stopping marriage equality in the state. <laughs> so I decided that it was time for me to stop, you know, singing at the at the church masses at that point. Um, but that doesn't erase, you know, many like four decades of of, you know, my own personal experience. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid that um, we found a good church, but the the die was already cast in a way. Um, yeah. I raised my kids in the church, uh, actually, mostly a Baptist church here in Santa Clarita, uh, just north of, of L.A., which is like, it's about as Idaho as Southern California gets. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a, I, I don't know if you wouldn't recognize this name, but it's the valley where John MacArthur's Master's University is. And oh, yeah. uh, a lot of the churches around here are yeah. church plants from Grace Community. Um, but but we, we ended up finding a church that I've learned a lot from uh, down in Pasadena, not only um, accepting, but the word affirming and the idea of mm -hmm. affirming, mm -hmm. which right. I find yeah. really uh, encouraging. Um, and edifying and and um, inspiring. And I'm just learning so much. But I, I wanted to get back to the uh, advisory council, faith-based yeah. neighborhood partnerships. I've heard from others on that um, on that advisory council that it, that it was it would sometimes get stuck because some advisors uh, close uh, in the administration and often uh, the loudest voices in the room had this default aversion for religious folks and religion yeah. in general. So is that fair to say, or did you have a different experience? I think that's fair to say. And, you know, I, I will tell you, you know, the fact that I was the one on the on the faith based council tells you how short the bench is of Democrats who they could appoint that even knew how to talk about you know, issues of faith or to people of faith. <laughs> because as you said, I'm not a practicing Catholic, nor is it my job. You know, my job is to understand what kind of swing voters think about things and how to persuade them. I don't have any kind of specific faith-based component to my job. It just happens that, you know, a lot of times swing voters are also people of faith. And um, so I had some experience in trying to understand that view. But when they came to me and said, will you be on the faith-based council? I was like, really? Is this because you don't know any other Democrats? Like, I don't know <laughs> what qualifies me to be that. You're like, person. have we met? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think that, you know, I was one of that. It was their third advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Um, and we had helped them find people for the first one because we had done an initiative in um, 2008. My colleague, Rachel Lazar, led it on bringing together, we called it Come Let Us Reason Together. And we brought um, evangelicals and other conservative uh, religious leaders together with progressive leaders to talk about whether there was some common ground that we could find that we could then support newly elected President Obama in taking. So it was reducing the need for abortion while protecting the right to have one by funding teen pregnancy prevention programs and also 
um, health care for young children, for people who can't afford it. Um, it was ending torture because this was coming right off the George W. Bush administration. It was employment non-discrimination for gay and lesbian folks and uh, and immigration reform. And so um, we brought some of these big megachurch pastors to the Obama administration um, and they put them on their first um, council. Um, but that council decided to tackle the issue of abortion. And that was very difficult. Yeah. Um, and it was in the midst of, if you recall, the debate about Obamacare and whether there was going to be taxpayer funds used for abortion services now that the government was going to be more involved in health care. And it really just burned the whole thing down because it created so much strife um, and, and just ill will on that advisory committee that um, the next time around, they decided to do human trafficking because they figured no one can be you know opposed to stopping human trafficking. Yeah. So let's go from abortion to like the most common ground issue possible. And then my, uh, my council was tasked with understanding how community-based organizations could help advance anti-poverty efforts. Um, so again, you know, a, a much less controversial topic than the first one. Um, so, you know, they came to me and said, will you be on this council? And I thought it was super fun and great. I got to meet a bunch of people that I wouldn't have before. Um, but it also really showed you what a disconnect there is between democratic politics and and people of faith who represent a majority of this country and including a majority of people that vote for Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> so at the same time, I went to I went to the Democratic National Convention that year. It was nominating Hillary Clinton. And they had all these buttons everywhere, right? It was like um, newly married for Hillary and yoga instructors for Hillary. And like literally every adjective you could think of about a human had a button for it. And there was no Catholics for Hillary, Christians for Hillary. There was Muslims for Hillary. Um, because that's seen as like a you know a, an outgroup potentially, um, but there there wasn't anything for somebody who might want to say I'm a person of faith and I support Hillary Clinton, and I thought that really spoke uh, you know uh, a lot about the state of where the Democratic you know leaders were at that point that they wouldn't even have thought to print that yeah. even though it's a descriptor that would describe most of their coalition. Right, right. If you read any of Ryan Burgess's data, it indicates that uh, folks who identify as religious in general is a declining percentage, and and Christians in particular is a declining percentage. Yet it's still a vast, it's still a majority of right. uh, American populace. Uh, it seems to me like a huge missed opportunity because there are issues. I mean, you know, kids in cages. You know, uh, how the the prior administrations, the way they they dealt with people at the border, there were a lot of friends, you know, even from my, you know, from my Grace Baptist days that were just yeah. appalled at that. And yet the abortion issue is just a non-starter. Yeah. So it, it always makes me wonder, can, can we, whether it's about uh, folks who are pro-life, uh, who identify as strictly pro-life, or more in general, can the Democratic Party um, hold space for folks that don't that that aren't orthodox on that don't check every box you know god forbid so to speak um there should be a nominee of like a pro-life democrat uh who's who's running for you know for a seat in congress for example yeah i mean i think that we have to try to create space because um, you know, the Democratic Party has to be a big tent or else it cannot win. Um, they're just it, it happens to be that Republicans have a bigger base. So oftentimes in certain places and, and in key states, they can win by just riling up people who already agree with them. Yeah. That is not true for Democrats. And especially with the Republican Party, you know, following this more and more extreme vision, um, which looks very different than it did when I first got to DC in 2006, you know, where, where their party has gone. Um, it is all the more important to me as a, as a, you know, center left Democrat that we maintain that big tent coalition and, and not say, if you don't agree with me on every single thing on this questionnaire, then, um, you know, you can't be in our club. We, we really need to be bringing people into the club, not kicking them out. Yeah, it seems like the debate is between is do we win by a big turnout 
uh, and that's the operation. Or if you listen to Mike Madrid, like he said it time and time again, the last the 2022 election was older, whiter, and more Republican. That's right. And, and the the reason that Democrats did much better than expected, winning a seat in, in in the Senate, not losing nearly as many seats in the House as as was projected, is because there was persuasion, effective persuasion of those older, whiter Republican. Uh, or historically Republican voters, which speaks actually to the work that you do with Third Way. It, it's um, it, a lot of the work that you do at Third Way is illuminating the plurality of voters who don't align with the extremes of one party or the other. So could you tell us a little bit more about Third Way or as an organization and specifically what you do with Third Way? Yeah, so Third Way um, was formed in uh, right after the loss of John Kerry in 2004 to George W. Bush trying to think about how Democrats could um, continue to win and build majority coalitions in, you know, in a system that is, at least in, in some ways, overrepresents um, rural areas, you know, redder areas, specifically the Senate and the Electoral College. Um, you know, you can run up the score in California as much as you want, but you only get two Senate votes <laughs> for yeah. California. Yeah. And so does South Dakota. So, um, you know, there are these kind of structural things about our system that I don't think are changing anytime soon. Um, and the bases are asymmetrical. There is a smaller progressive base than there is a conservative base in the country. So, you know, Third Way was formed to try to think about how can we um, build sustainable progress by bringing together a bunch of people who support that thing. And, you know, I think part of what we try to avoid is um, it's very bad policymaking to, you know, do a bunch of changes. And then in the next two years, you undo all those changes. And then the mm. next two years, you redo all those changes. And that's really a lot of what we've seen you know, over the past couple of decades is executive action that then gets overturned. And, um, you know, the, the one that makes my heart hurt the most right now is the Dreamers, you know, the the DACA program, which allowed folks who have never known any country to be their home except for this one, um, but were brought here without a, a proper documentation as children, um, that that program is about to be struck down by the Supreme Court. And it is going to leave a million people who came out, were promised, you know, safety, are now sitting on a list in the Department of Homeland Security, um, it's going to leave them without any options. And yeah. that's horrible. That is not how we should be governing in our country. And so I think, um, you know, our general proposition, whether it's on clean energy or the economy or higher education or these social issues, is to try to think about how can we make progress, you know, pragmatic, pro progressive progress that's actually sustainable that doesn't create a backlash that undoes it later in public opinion, that doesn't, you know, leave some folks behind and then um, create people that are, you know, atomized against that thing, um, but really tries to um, make sure that the policy changes we're making in the country have broad support so that, you know, they can, they can continue moving forward regardless of how much back and forth there is in the control of Congress. Yeah. Now, you having a, a background in constitutional law, it seems to me that a lot of folks look at executive actions or cases that come out of the Supreme Court as legislation. And yeah. if you were to listen to someone like Sarah Isger, uh, her interpretation of some of the rulings that have come out of mm -hmm. SCOTUS and other uh, federal courts is basically judges saying to um, the legislative branch, hey, do your job, yeah, you know? Yeah. So you, you talk about being a pragmatic progressive and creating effective legislation. Can you, can you unpack that? What does it mean to be a pragmatic progressive? Yeah, I'll give you a, a really specific example from this past summer. So um, we were helping the gun safety movement and um, members of Congress try to figure out whether there was any action that could be taken after the horrible massacre at Uvalde. You know, we were all shocked by that. Um, and we've worked on guns since the founding of Third Way, worked very closely with the Sandy Hook families after that horrible massacre and almost got background checks across the finish line. But it was clear that that wasn't going to be on the table this time. Like we couldn't even pass it when we had nearly 60 Democratic votes in the Senate, let alone 50. Um, so we, you know, we were worried that what was going to happen there was the kind of advocacy organizations would say, you know, we want universal background checks and an assault weapons ban or nothing. 
And the, you know, NRA folks would say, great, we'll do nothing. Um, but instead, what ended up happening, and I think this is a, in great credit to the, you know, the senators who negotiated it, and also to the gun safety movement who said, we will take any progress we can make. Um, they managed to get the first bipartisan gun bill across the finish line in three decades. Yeah. I was 10 last time we did something about guns. And it invested in mental health services. It made it easier and incentivized states to create red flag laws for people um, to be able to say, I'm very concerned um, about this person um, and the fact that they might be violent. And so can we temporarily remove their access to firearms? Um, you know, really good, important policies, um, closing the boyfriend loophole, which was basically saying, you know, if you were married to someone and you had a, a domestic violence incident that you were convicted of um, that could limit your access to firearms. But if you were not married to them, then it wouldn't. And, you know, there, there is a huge, huge connection between gun violence and domestic violence. And, and it's a, a big driver of, of, um, you know, murders of people that are being domestically abused. So uh, there, those are important things that got done. And I think there, are, you know, there are some who would say, well, you know, that's that's just like nibbling around the edges and, you know, giving the Republicans something to say that they did, even though it didn't address the bigger issues. What I would say is we got to take what we can get. And also by doing so, we create an incentive to come back and do it again. Yeah. You know, you've got people like John Cornyn, who literally were Senate senator from Texas, was standing on the floor of the Senate with Senator Kirsten Sinema. And said, okay, let's do immigration next. Because he felt good about getting right. it done. He wanted to do something. It happened in his state. And, and he's a human being who saw what happened at Uvalde and felt like, I have to do something. Well, he's also in the state where the kids were in cages. Like, he may feel now he can do something there. Especially if he doesn't get a real backlash from the right. If he, you know, feels supported, then he can take the next step. And, you know, I just think creating those kinds of incentives is is what we need to do. And too often it's an all or nothing proposition. Um, you know, the kind of opposite example is um, there were a lot of folks working on some compromise legislation around Roe Ro versus Wade and the reproductive rights movement said, no, we want the Women's Health Protection Act or nothing. And, um, you know, that's a very different approach. And so I, I think I would say, like, we should try to get what we can get done and yep. then do it again, and do it again and do it again, instead of holding out and making the perfect the enemy of the good. Right, right. And it seems like the Biden administration is more aligned with what you're saying, because the, the State of the Union definitely underscored that. If you really think about it, there's been a long list of accomplishments. That's but right. if you look at those accomplishments, so many of them, it, to your point, it, gun legislation, like we got stuff done on guns and it was Cornyn, a Republican senator who was leading right. negotiations or um, health care. The, they call it the Inflation Reduction Act, but the health care yeah. costs and environmental bill yeah. was the most conservative Democrat uh, yeah. in the Senate who led those negotiations. Bipartisan infrastructure yeah. actually got done. It was all bipartisan. And, mm -hmm. you know, to your point, uh, what's the expression? The uh, the enemy of the good, uh, like, let, let me get something and as opposed to insisting on everything, you know, and being totally orthodox to the the a pure version of what we want or else we don't want anything. I, I, I appreciate incremental progress yeah. um, that folks that maybe I disagree with on any number of other issues with uh, that, that we can come to some good conclusion for the betterment of us all. You know, and I always say, I think there's a different, there's, there's good compromise and bad compromise, right? Good compromise is the kind of compromise that is, is the gun bill that we discussed is getting something done that, that matters and, and creating incentive to come back and do it again. Bad compromise creates kind of what I would call an off ramp. Like let's deal with the easiest part of this and then we're never going to come back and touch it again. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so there are issues on which I think it gets it more complicated. For example, if you're um, saying, well, I'm going to protect this one group of people, but not this other group of people, I'm going to leave them behind. Um, and I know that they're actually the most vulnerable group of people. Um, so it's not that, I mean, you might think I work at Third Way, so I think all compromise is good. Um, it's not. There's There are some deals that aren't worth taking, but I think the vast, vast majority can be made into good deals if you, you know, say, here are my red lines and here are my red lines, and then you work between them. I think I'm hearing the musician in you talk, that there's room <laughs> for violins and cellos and 
percussion and piano. Right. And, but let's all agree that we're following the same score, the same composition, yeah. you know, at least stay within those, uh, you know, have some sort of common frame of reference. So that's right. What now, what is the current makeup of the Democratic Party? Have you taken a look at that post 2022 election? Yeah, um, you know, I think we've we've looked at it a whole bunch of different ways. I think it's clear that the increase um, in education polarization um, has really changed both parties' coalitions over the past couple of elections. So um, by that, I mean before 2016, there wasn't a big difference um, between how people voted um, based on whether or not they had a college degree. So there might have been uh, a difference based on gender or race, you know, the average man would vote different than the average woman, the average, you know, African American might vote different than the the average white voter. Um, But really, what started to come into play in, in 2016 and beyond was huge divergences among people of the same race of different educational credentials. Um, And so Democrats keep increasing their support among college educated voters of every race, but they are losing support from non-college educated voters of every race. And it happened, it started with white non-college voters, which was a big topic of conversation, obviously, when Trump was elected. But it has continued with non-college voters of color. And we have continued to see an erosion of the Democratic Party's support there. I think that's very disconcerting because, you know, in its best iteration, the Democratic Party is supposed to be the party of people who work hard, you know, the party of people who want to earn a good life. Um, And if we continue to only be able to appeal to college-educated voters, it's only about a third of the electorate. (laughs) It doesn't make up a winning coalition. Um, And it kind of skews our priorities and and our worldview. It makes us um, concentrate more on things like, you know, student loan cancellation than things like investing in apprenticeships. Um, It just, it changes the policies that you support um, when you're coalition coalition shifts like that. So I don't want to be part of a Democratic Party that is only appealing to college educated voters and making people without a four year degree feel like I look down upon them. That's not who I am. And that's not the the party I want to convey. But I think increasingly, that is the kind of silo in which folks live in DC. And so they they can't even see that you know their their friend group is not necessarily representative of most of the country. Right, right. Now I know you've done, you did a post twenty twenty um, political autopsy on yeah. the Democratic Party. Have you done that? Uh, first of all, I'd love for you to dive a little bit deeper into what you found two years ago. But have you done a similar analysis post twenty twenty two? Yeah, so we did a huge, huge analysis in 2020 um, together with a bunch of different groups because we didn't want people to think, oh, this is just third ways perspective. We, you know, we worked with the Latino Victory Project and um, the Congressional Black Caucus and um, a whole bunch of other folks to put that together so that it could be kind of the um, definitive autopsy of what had happened in, in 2020 and not look like it was just kind of third way spin. And what we found there was um, that most people that weren't Joe Biden, who are on the ticket as Democrats, did worse than Joe Biden. Um, And in part, that was because the Democratic brand was really hurting them with a lot of voters. People don't love a generic Democrat. And they knew who Joe Biden was. They knew Joe Biden wasn't going to defund the police. Like, he, you know, <laughs> he's, yeah. he's not that guy. Um, so he was able to create his own brand. But if you were someone that didn't have, you know, $2 trillion to spend in a presidential campaign, it was harder for you to do that. And so we've worked really hard to help folks um, over that, that next two years. Um, realize that there are a lot of problems with the generic Democratic brand, particularly outside of big cities, um, outside of, you know, college educated suburbs, and, um, and that they need to um, kind of rebut the attacks and not just ignore them. You know, there is a um, common wisdom in DC that if you're talking about the issue your opponent wants to talk about, you're doing their job for them. So you should just change the subject to the thing that you want to talk about. Well, that's not very satisfying if you're a voter who cares about that thing, right? So saying, okay, well, we're not going to talk about immigration anyways, health care prices, like that doesn't actually tell me anything about the thing I'm worried about. You're just changing the subject and that's very obvious. So we've worked with folks to try to help them say, 
you know, I, I do believe we need to have order at the border. I do believe we need to make changes to our um, immigration system. And I'm going to deliver on healthcare costs to, you know, make sure that that um, the kind of far right isn't the only people that are talking about those issues, because issues like crime and immigration, they, they matter to people. And, um, and to pretend that they don't and just change the subject to the thing you want to talk about instead feels very dismissive. And, and I don't think really works for people. Yeah. Now I'm going to, this is very self-serving of me, but I'm going to have you, um, help us with uh, California 27. I don't know how much you study individual house races, but ours is a fascinating district. It was California 25. Now it's California 27. It was redrawn. It was, it was already a Biden plus, I think in the last election, Biden plus eight, it was redrawn as a Biden plus 12. And yet Mike Garcia won in the special mm-hmm. election after Katie Hill resigned. And then he oh. won 2020 by the thinnest of margins, 333 votes out of over 340,000 that voted in, yeah. in this district. He won by a little bit more decisively in 2022. So how, how is California 27 how did we lose that race? Was it because Christy Smith uh, ran in all three of those mm-hmm. races? So what is it purely the candidate? Is it that uh, more? Uh, a, would you make more of a critique about her campaign? Uh, is it a lack of support from the National Party? How how did they lose this district? Yeah, I think there's two things going on there. One is that um, Kevin McCarthy is um, horrible as he is on many things. Um, has been quite good at recruiting diverse candidates for Republicans. And that has really worked for them. They have decided in the um, in the last few cycles that they are going to try to recruit Latino candidates, Black candidates, um, women candidates, vet candidates. Are um, we going to talk about the gay Republican candidate? Uh, oh, definitely not. This is not going to George <laughs> Santos. No. Thank you. Okay. Uh, no, but um, but you know the the Latino vote is one of the um, is one of the ones where Democrats have been eroding the quickest because of um, a, a real feeling of disconnect. And so, if you can recruit someone, not to say that you know Latino voters are just going to vote for another Latino, but um, if if what you're worried about is that the Republican Party um, is exclusionary of Latinos and your Republican candidate is a Latino candidate, that that calms your fears a little bit about that, right? And so I think that was very smart. The other thing is what we saw in quite a few blue states, which is um, folks pushing back against the things that the blue state had done um, and and also not necessarily turning out around something like you know, abortion, because people in California do not think that like Gavin Newsom is going to sign an abortion ban. (laughs) And they're right, right? (laughs) That's true. So, um, so there wasn't that piece playing into it, like there was in in some of the other states. Um, But also in Oregon, in New York, in California, people have been really concerned about crime. They've been really concerned about homelessness. They've been really concerned about just kind of like chaos, post pandemic chaos and feeling like, they can see that in their own community and um, and they don't trust Democrats on those issues. So I think, you know, we did uh, eight post-election focus groups the week after the election with a mix of di- people from different places. But in every single one of them, we heard people saying, well, you know, I voted for um, this party at the top of the ticket because of this dynamic, but then I voted lower down about this. And, you know, for example, in Georgia, people said, well, I voted for Brian Kemp for governor because I think he's done a pretty good job at dealing with, you know, crime and homelessness. But I voted for Democrats for the state legislature because I don't like his position on abortion and I want him to have a check. So we heard that in Ohio. We heard that um, in Arizona. We heard it so many places. And it just reminded me, like, people act like swing voters are dumb or like just not paying attention. They are paying attention. And they know, you know, that in order to kind of balance the excesses that they might be worried about with each party, they're going to have to make some decisions where they're saying, okay, you can be in charge of this, but you should be in charge of this. And and I feel like that is really what we saw in a lot of those races that we lost in New York, um, where people are very concerned about crime. Um, And in those races in in Oregon and California on the West Coast, where people were very worried about crime, homelessness, and, and other kind of chaos in the streets, and they just didn't trust Democrats to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, to your point, this district, we voted for the Democrat for the state assembly. Um, and yet we reelected Mike Garcia uh, to go back to the U.S. House. I've seen it in other states as well. I mean, Wisconsin is a good example. 
Um, your your home state of Minnesota flipped its uh, state legislature, uh, yep. Michigan, Pennsylvania. Do you think the Democratic Party is doing enough at the state and local level? <laughs> I mean, the answer is always no, right? Um, and you can, uh, you know, you can always find an example of where Democrats are much more focused on Congress than they are on the states, even though the states are the ones that are making most of the policy on most of the things we seem to care the most about. <laughs> yeah. Um, in in part, I think it's because we. We would prefer to do things by, you know, nationwide decree, right? It seems a lot easier to just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tell everyone they have to do this thing. And, and that's kind of our um, our natural go-to, whereas the Republicans have been very good at um, using federalism to their own advantage. But um, I also think it's in part because um, the infrastructure on the left really focuses on a single issue area not necessarily on kind of the infrastructure of, of the whole. And so, you know, you you might see whether it's a, a small dollar donor or a, a billionaire giving money to climate, giving money to reproductive rights, giving money to an issue area, but not investing in, you know, the infrastructure to um, elect Democrats at the state level who could then put in place the policies that that those um, different advocacy groups want. So I think we're very driven by kind of issue-based politics. And that means a lot of times we don't see where there's an overlap that you might need multiple different issues to come together to do that same thing, to make progress on any of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a lot of folks would do well to study when uh, Michael Steele was running the RNC mm -hmm. and how long lasting the groundwork that he set up. Ha it, I mean, we're still seeing it today. That was some, yeah. uh, uh, man, I, I, I admire him just as a person and how he's evolved politically. Um, yeah. but man, that work is still, we're still feeling the ripples of it today. That's right. Uh, yeah. I, I'd love to talk about though, a little bit. I know we don't want to talk about, uh, George Santos. That's, that's not, <laughs> we can, my... it's just not that productive. I don't think there's anything I have to say that anyone else has it. <laughs> I know. Well, on a, on a more broad scale as a relative outsider watching, um, from the outside looking in, it looks like the Republican Party's kind of impaling themselves. You, you know, if you look at their behavior at the uh, State of the Union or these committees, you know, um, yeah. it, it seems like they're doing themselves great harm. And yet, if you were to listen to a Jim Jordan issue uh, uh, interview on Meet the Press or Marjorie Taylor Greene on a moment by moment basis, their behavior indicates that they think they're acting in a rather heroic way. <laughs> So, yeah. so is it just me? Are they, um, are they indeed myopic enough to think they're heroic when they are indeed impaling themselves? Or is there this huge constituency that's like cheering them on? Yeah, he's a liar. And, you know, go, go, go. Uh, let's investigate Hunter Biden's laptop in Libya and Benghazi. And I don't know. It's like a whole new thing. It's a, I don't know. I mean, it's certain. Yeah, there is certainly a group that's cheering them on somewhere. Um, but you know, I think it's a yet another example of how um, Republicans judge their success by um, whether Tucker Carlson or Fox News are happy with it, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to you know whether the median swing voter is. And you know, a lot of that comes from the fact that. Um, those members don't ever have to worry about their general election campaigns. Those are not folks yeah, that are- Yeah, MTG isn't going to be challenged in, no, in Georgia and, 14 or whatever it is. And if she was, it would probably be from the right. So she's more concerned about what Republican primary voters think and um, not that concerned about, uh, you know, about what the general electorate thinks. And I don't think she's, you know, talking that much to Mike Garcia either, because I don't think he thinks it's particularly useful what she's doing. But, you know, I, I think like uh, the, the perfect example of, of that dichotomy, I think, is Ron DeSantis. You know, obviously, Ron DeSantis is thinking about running for president, is doing all of these things on culture wars that, you know, d d flying immigrants to Martha's Vineyard and, um, you know, these stunts. Anti-woke laws. and Yeah, with the college board and Disney. And I mean, it's, yeah. it's all over the place. He's not doing that because he thinks that wins general election voters. In fact, he did not run one ad on those things during his general election. He ran ads on funding the education system and things that he never talks about <laughs> right. uh, during the primary uh, because he knows that the 
views of Republican primary voters and the views of the general electorate are not the same thing. And I think for Democrats, um, we often, a lot of Democratic primary voters are much more moderate or conservative than um, kind of the extremes of our party. You know, that's why we got Joe Biden, right? That black voters in South Carolina were like, no way are we putting up Bernie Sanders. Um, but the the other benefit is that Democrats care about winning. And so we, we kind of um, do a pundit thing where we think like, is this person electable? Um, not just, is this my favorite human on the planet or are they saying something that makes me excited? Republicans do not care a lot about electability right now. That is not a thing they're focused on um, that came across very clearly in our, you know, in our polling and also in their primary results. And um, so they just have this different dynamic going on where they're only paying attention to like the 10% most right wing people in the country. Um, and among that group, maybe they're being really successful, but that does not set them up well, I think, for those general election conversations where you know, it is 100% clear that people rejected extremes, you know, the, the Carrie Lakes of the world, the Herschel Walkers of the world, um, all of the election deniers that were running for um, positions in, in swing states lost. And that tells you, I think, that there's there's something else going on and people really want, they're looking for the party that can be the most mainstream, not the most extreme. Right, right. Yeah, there are still a number of House districts that Biden won that Republicans are still in, um, that, that, that they, they won in the Republicans won in those districts, mine being one of them. What do you've already touched upon it, um, here, here and there, but what do Democrats need to do to win back the house, to win those districts and win back the house? You know, I think we need to maintain our image as the mainstream party. And I think, you know, Mike Garcia is a great example. He wasn't a scary monster, right? He wasn't Carrie Lake. <laughs> I, I kind of disagree with that. Do you? <laughs> I do. I do. I, I know yeah. that um, he, he did a few things that, uh, number one, his his name is Mike Garcia. Number two, he has uh, a lot of money coming in from his corporate backers. Uh, yeah. McCarthy funneled a lot of money his way. And uh, he he ran a fairly aggressive campaign. But so I, the reason I push back on it is if you look at his voting record, particularly yeah. starting on January 6th and January 7th, 2021, yeah. um, he voted to overturn. But I know you're not yeah. technically not overturn the election, but he, he yep. voted to challenge in, in Arizona and Pennsylvania. And he didn't even understand the laws that he was yeah. voting to challenge. He didn't understand that it was Pennsylvania's uh, Republican led house that passed a law in, in 2019 that yeah. he was challenging. It was a Republican-led House. He didn't even understand the laws that he was challenging. Yeah. But then if you look at his, in particular, his record of public statements, his record of public statements might as well come right out of Lauren Boebert, right mm. out of MTG. Yeah. Um, well, he, this is this is what's a little scary to me is that, you know, as people have said, oh, well, maybe some of these Republicans that are in Biden districts are going to push the caucus to a more moderate place. But they they didn't wield that power at all during even during the crazy speaker fight. Right. Um, yeah. And and so and they don't seem willing to do so. That is worrisome. Uh, you know, I think Mike Garcia um, paints himself as not Carrie Lake, but um, but he's actually behaving like Carrie Lake. So to your point, yeah. Um, yeah, it's very worrisome. And he hasn't shown up on any news outlets other than, you know, Newsmax and, and yeah. Fox Business and Fox News. So he's speaking and representing only the extreme wing of his party based That's on his right. voting record and based on his record of public statements. And what what bugs me is that in a lot of those public statements, he does what a lot of um, folks inside of that information silo do, which is basically uh, generalize and mischaracterize folks who are Democrats or even mm -hmm. folks who voted Democrat um, and uh, vilify and, and make an enemy out of mm -hmm. as if we got to defeat them. They're our enemies. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know what? I, I'm actually an independent. I'm a fiscal conservative. I vote. Mm -hmm. Um, largely Republican at the state and local level, but I am alienated by that language yeah. because yeah. I live in a house with people who vote for Democrats. I, 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 you know, I work with a lot of people who are like, you're talking about my friends. They're not yeah. my enemies. They're my neighbors. Yeah. You right. know, they're my loved ones who might vote differently than I do on particular issues. But like, that's why I can't get on board with Mike Garcia. If there was yeah. an independent Republican, sorry, this is my thing. It's like you, you, you lit the fuse, you know, Good. um, 
you know, if, if there was a Republican, if there was a Mitt Romney-esque Republican in my district, I'd be mm-hmm. 100% on board. But you yeah. know what? Christy Smith, one can critique her campaign and that it wasn't aggressive enough, but Christy Smith made room for guys like me. Um, yep. I, I introduced myself when she was in the assembly as the guy who voted against her. And yep. she asked me why. I said, I'm a small business mm-hmm. person. And some of the legislation she was supporting was not in my best interest. She said, mm-hmm. join me on my small business committee. You know, mm-hmm. and even mm-hmm. on the small business committee, we yeah. didn't, there was a lot that we disagreed on, but she yeah. worked hard to find ways of of collaborating, of finding things that she could advocate for me or work into legislation that she was supporting, you know, as opposed to treating me like uh like the like a villain or an en- an enemy. So yeah. anyway, sorry. Yeah, I think that's your answer about how we win those seats back, but I think it needs to be more than just Christy Smith, right? We yeah. need to make sure that the spokespeople for the Democratic Party nationally, the people that are the loudest, right. are also carrying that message. Because yeah. right now, we do have a lot of loud people in the party who are carrying different kinds of messages. Yeah. Um, and so, and and I don't think that, that our goal should be to make those people stop speaking. Those people should speak, and they represent their district, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, but you know, the the Democrats that are the, more the Christie Smith model have been quieter than some of those super far left folks, and I think that's the piece that needs to change. We need to exactly as you said, create room. Um, you can be a, a kind of Democrat. Um, you can vote for Democrats and look like this. Um, and so that's really what, you know, we hope to help uh, help folks do over the next couple of years. Yeah. To your point, when I see uh, different um, pundits on TV or elected officials or or um, for some reason, Simone Sanders is coming to mind versus somebody like Mayor Pete, you know, mm-hmm. they probably have a lot of similarities in terms of legislation that they actually support. But yeah. Somehow Mayor Pete is able to hang on Fox News and be in the conversation, you know, um, in certain uh, circles and is is more palatable. It's not just delivery. I think it's a it's a whole posture. It's a whole disposition in a way. You know? Yeah. And I think it also he, you know, has had to persuade lots of different kinds of people in his life and um, and be surrounded by lots of different kinds of people. And I think that is the way that we kind of break down this polarization, right, is to have conversations like the ones you host um, and, you know, have conversations in our living room where we're talking to people that might not agree with us about everything, because it helps you understand that that person isn't a monster. They have a viewpoint for a reason. Um, and maybe even they have some good points. And maybe you should work, you know, responses to those points into your thing. And the the more we do that, and the more we engage, the more we can, you know, both advance our own goals, but um, elect people who who will. Um, and the, the more we silo ourselves and say, like, it's uncomfortable, I'm only going to talk to people I agree with 100%, like, the less we're going to be able to build governing coalitions. Yeah. Yeah. How do we do this thing better? That's where politics and religion come in. It's figuring out how to live together among each other and, you know, nurturing relationships across our differences, nurturing community across our differences. So a couple more questions. One is, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Um, Who would you love to interview that you haven't been able to yet? Oh, I got a long list. So (laughs) you were at the top of the list. So I was thrilled when you said yes. Because uh, I've heard you, I've heard you on other platforms, but then hearing you, you know, over the last year or two uh, on on Ron's platform, Politicology, I was like, I gotta get Lene. So I was really <laughs> thrilled that you came on. I would say that there are thinkers and writers that I it would just make my day. The first person, strangely, the first person that comes to mind is Wynton Marsalis. Oh, that would be a great interview. Yeah, I don't think he would give me the time of day, but if he ever did, it would be it would be the highlight of my life so far. Uh, just because he's done a lot more work, his 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 music. We all know him as a as a great jazz musician, and you know the work he does at Lincoln Center. But his work is is in, infused with a sense of theological profundity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's infused with a, an awareness mm-hmm. of our political history, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I'd love to talk to him about that. Um, a couple others that come to mind. I mean, David Brooks, I think, is one of my favorite mm. writers. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk to him. Um, David French is another one. Mm. Um, oh, gosh. Oh, um, Peggy Noonan. 
Mm. I would love to talk to Peggy Noonan or, or um, the historian. Oh gosh, I can't believe I forgot her name off the top of my, she was born in Brooklyn, was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, moved to Boston. Um, she, she worked, I think for the Lyndon Johnson administration. She's a great historian. Do you know who I'm thinking of? No. Oh, I can't believe I forgot her name. Uh, occasionally she's still on the Sunday morning shows. Um, she, her, a book she released about a year or two ago was comparing um, four American leaders, Teddy Roosevelt, Lincoln, uh, LBJ, and FDR. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Thank you. Yes, Doris Kearns Goodwin. She would definitely be at the very, very top of the list. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, those are a few that come to mind. Love it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. How can we find you online? More information about Third Way and all the great work that you're doing. Yeah. So all of our work and analysis and all the data you can dig through yourself are at thirdway.org. And I am still on Twitter, although less frequently, uh, at Lene Erickson. So are you going to go to like Macedon or Post News? or? It all seems so complicated. And I've kind of been like moving away from social media anyways, because, you know, the Twitterati is its own little bubble. So, yeah. uh, so we'll see. Uh, the the thing is, I kind of have to tweet for my job because that's yeah. where a lot of reporters get their information at this point, and they don't really check their email. Um, so I'm still tied to it in in certain ways, but uh, I try to infuse it with lots of like French bulldog content <laughs> and other things, and not just you know the the latest third way report. That's awesome. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's a good follow. So I do. I'm much more discerning. And have uh, narrowed down who I'm following and yeah. who I'm allowing to engage with me uh, since the uh, it's uh, it's gone to the dogs. Well, not the right <laughs> dogs. It's just whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, this has been a real thrill. I'm so glad to get to know you. And I'm telling you, if you're in SoCal, we got to do we got to do sushi. You told me sushi. <laughs> I know that sounds delightful. And if I'm in D.C., I will hit you up because uh, that's great. I, uh, I would I would love to um, I'd love to continue the conversation. So thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button. Follow us, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about us. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S's and Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.